This is the Austrian AI podcast, and I'm your host, Manuel Basica. Today on the show, I'm talking to Rania Vasia. Rania has a background in theoretical mathematics and has focused her work in recent years as a data scientist on natural language understanding and social media monitoring. Today on the show, she will share her experience organizing Data for Good, an NGO organization that is bringing together data scientists and other NGOs on a voluntary basis in order to support different social projects. During the second part of her interview, Rani will describe the ongoing efforts by Women in AI Austria to discuss and improve future European AI regulations. She describes what options individuals and small organizations have to change international regulations on topics of AI and digitalization in order to build a better future. Without further ado, let's get right into it. Hello, Rania. Thank you very much for coming on to the show. Hi, Manuel. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's a pleasure. I'm happy to have you today on the show and to talk about several um, NGO-related uh, organizations that you are taking part in. But maybe we can start um, with you giving a very short introduction about yourself. Great. Thank you. So um, I actually come from theoretical mathematics over many edges and corners, uh, including taking a break from work and having kids, I ended up um, very much fascinated by data science. Uh, in particular, what I liked about it is uh, that there is so much to learn and that it has to do with uh, many topics, not just statistics and mathematics and computer science, but it touches many, many fields. Uh, and I thought this was very fascinating. And my first entry point into project was doing uh, social media monitoring and working with uh, natural language processing. And those have sort of remained my favorite go-to topics when I, when I work um, with data. I'm also very active in the Vienna Data Science Group, where I'm a member of the board. And uh, as member of the board, um, I'm also the coordinator of an initiative called Data for Good. And this is sort of a pet project with, with a fellow Vienna Data Science Group member that, that we really felt that this was a data science, and now you can call it AI, that this was a wonderful tool, but very few people actually have the resources to use it and to access its benefits. So we, we wanted to open this up to NGOs or maybe social entrepreneurs, uh, smaller entities that could get a use but don't have the capacity to use it. And uh, this turned out to be a, a great uh, opportunity also to see new applications, to meet people who are entering the field for the first time to experience a data science project from, the, from scratch. Can you maybe tell us, our listeners, a bit more about um, so Data for Good itself? So this organization, what are the kind of projects and the NGOs that you're, you're working with when you're doing uh, the, this kind of data science or AI-related project? Data for Good is, is an initiative that has grown. And at the beginning, uh, the way we got our project was to go out and actually meet people in the NGOs and talk to them. And uh, half the time we were trying to convince people who are scared and totally negatively viewing 
the whole process. And the other half of the time, we were trying to bring people back down to earth and tell them, no, it's not a magic wand. It's a real tool with real limitations. So it was really an eye opener for us to see what what a, a huge range of views there are out there on what data science can or cannot do. Um, but it was also a lot of work talking to people, um, trying to find projects that are suitable for uh, a data-driven approach, and then learning together with the NGOs what other resources are necessary, uh, things that as a data scientist, if you're part of a team, you never really experience, um, understanding how much time and effort is required of other people to deliver the data that that you actually need, or mm-hmm. in order to figure out, well, what exactly am I trying to answer by running this project? The first time we did this, we were planning for a hackathon. Uh, we wanted to have about three to five projects. We ended up with four, uh, but this was after talking to about 20 NGOs that we managed to find four that doable in a hackathon setting and where we thought the result would actually be useful for them. Interesting. Definitely, I can imagine that the expectation management is something that, that you have in business uh, a lot. So um, it, it must be very similar yes. then for the NGOs. But can you give our listeners maybe an example of, of, of you said, those three different NGOs to understand what kind of, um, of NGOs are suitable to be, in a sense, supported or that you can make projects with them? I don't think there is one kind of NGO that is suitable, but there are projects that are suitable. So we did one project, uh, for example, with Hilfswerk Österreich. This was on the hackathon. Uh, Together with them, we looked through cases of matching a carer with a person in need of care. And these carers actually have to live in with the patients because the patients need 24-hour care. Mm -hmm. There is a long and very involved process of matching that happens by Hilfswerk Österreich in order to fit the carer and the carer's uh, capabilities with the requirements of the patient. Um, But sometimes, often for very personal reasons, these people are living together for weeks at a time, uh, these relationships don't work out. Hiswek Österreich, they they have a plan where they regularly check in on these carers and uh, evaluate what is happening in the home of the patient. And based on these reports, they wanted to figure out, are there red flags to signal to us when a relationship is going wrong so that we can intervene ahead of time instead of having to wait until everything falls apart and we have to restart the whole matching process. So this was one project. It was actually a very involved project because uh, it involved uh, sensitive data and we had to help Hilfswerk Österreich figure out how to remove all the sensitive data. And then based on a few reports um, using natural language processing and statistics, try to find uh, things that would flag problematic patient-carer situations. 
I understand. But actually, then one question concerning um, this project. So um, those reports, without being analyzed by a kind of sentiment analysis, are they not read by individuals in order to, to extract actually to understand how well the relationships between the care and the caregiver is developing? Yeah, so these reports are read on an individual case-by-case -case basis, but what we were trying to do is, is trying to find a sort of a meta level, so a pattern uh, that would happen repeatedly in the cases where that ended up going bad, that maybe uh, when you so it's it's a matter of the forest or the trees when you when you're only looking at the um, cases at an individual level you may not pick up on this kind of meta pattern so what we were trying to do is find the meta pattern by um, putting in like a hundred reports and trying to see the ones that ended up falling apart were there key patterns mm -hmm. that that we could uh, distill understand and um how did this process actually come about so when you said this was part of the um, of a hackathon if i understand it correctly mm -hmm. so um can you say something so you have been as you said you have been selecting different projects talking and visiting different ngos and yeah. um once you had like um this list of of, of possible projects you organized um the hackathon was it a multi-day hackathon or what kind of event was it and how how did you actually then found participants Uh, the hackathon was a was a weekend hackathon. Uh, it ran over a Saturday and a Sunday, but a lot of the sort of dirty work, the unglamorous work, happened um, in the two three months prior to that. The way the hackathon was set up was that once we identified a project that was doable, we would find an experienced data scientist who could. Uh, accompany the project and this experienced data scientist would then go talk to the NGO, um, help them uh, prepare their data so that it was uh, usable for the hackathon and also explain to them what they could do with the result when it was done. Mm -hmm. And obviously by going and talking to the NGOs, the, the data science we call them the data science lead, also needed to get a better understanding of what exactly was the NGO's need because we didn't want to sort of miss the target by, by solving a problem that wasn't actually uh, their problem. Understandable. Do I understand it correctly that in some way you split up the project, right? You said, uh, if I understood, there wasn't, that was voluntary work as well, I guess, this lead data scientist. Mm -hmm. So they have been exactly working, identifying the problem, describing it and doing all kinds, I guess, like of, of data pre-processing, data cleaning, yes. so that as part of the hackathon, this data would then be easily uh, processable and available to the participants. And, exactly. Um, Those, those uh, data science leads, as you said already, those are voluntary uh, members of the Data for Good organization. Or if someone is interested in, in, in becoming such a um, data lead for future projects, for example, what are some of the requirements? And maybe you can talk a bit about the motivation on the participant side. 
Yeah, so uh, thanks for bringing this up. Uh, all of Data for Good is voluntary. So uh, nobody gets paid for their work. And amazingly, we, we've never had problems finding people who want to help out with this. And uh, all of our um, data scientists, the ones who were the lead, um, actually, as I said, worked for a longer period of time and really put in a lot of effort uh, for an extended period of time. They were all happy to have done this because they experienced a kind of project that um, they wouldn't normally experience in their, in their work lives. And this kind of uh, interaction with the people who actually uh, need uh, the result was was something new, and they all seem to like it. They've they've all come mm-hmm. back for more. Um, but it is it is a lot of work. As I said, it's sort of the boring stuff: the cleaning the data, making sure, actually, even making sure that you have the data. A lot of times, it took us just two months to get a hold of the data uh, that we would need for the hackathon. A few projects almost fell out of the hackathon because up until uh, two weeks before the hackathon, they were still unable to give us the data that we needed. And these are very precious things to experience because a lot of times we think data science is the cool stuff when you're in a class, you're just handed the data. And usually it's more or less in the form that you want it. So in the hackathon, you really have the experience of how difficult it is to actually get data, um, how you have to pay attention to not just technical limits, but also legal limits on on what is possible and really the human interaction that uh, in the end was what made the project successful or not. I can definitely imagine that uh, those real-world experiences that you gain by doing such a project, they are very, very valuable and they can help people to, to, to learn a lot and shape their careers. I'm just curious, as you already mentioned and touched upon it, how does, let's say, the experience on working with data or like how does the digitalization and the infrastructure at those NGOs actually look like? So how prepared are they that they would even be able to make use of data they have or the data they collected and it's like even the collection of data anything which uh, is interesting for an NGO because I there's always this or there's this old saying data is the new oil so there's like a business drive to collect data but um, for an NGO that has not necessarily right to focus on making money um, do they even care about collecting data? This differs from NGO to NGO, but sometimes they don't even need to collect data. They have it. They have the data, and what they need is not fancy, high-powered, latest advance in machine learning, but things that from a data science perspective are very simple or very basic. Having the data, but storing it in a way which makes it easier to understand what you've got and how it relates to each other. Something very simple like that could already make life easier for the NGO. Or actually very simple operations of putting the data into an Excel sheet in the right format so that you can generate even simple tables or simple graphs. Those kinds of things might not seem really cool 
uh, to somebody who, who works, I don't know, in computer vision or, or uh, text analysis. But in the end, those can be the most useful things for the NGO. And then once they've understood how to use the data and how to handle it, then they can start thinking about other uses. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. But then to shortly come back to the, the hackathon itself. So how did it then work out? So you said it was over weekend, it was two days. Mm-hmm. Um, the participants then split up and they chose a project and they work together on this project to achieve a certain goal that was defined prior by the lead data scientist. Or how can the listeners imagine this? Yes. Yeah, so the hackathon itself was open to everybody with with or without prior experience. And uh, they got to identify the project that they preferred to work on. And so we, we did a little matching, trying to put uh, people into the teams to work on the projects that they uh, wanted to. And then on the weekend, they met for the first time. And mm-hmm. uh, they, the data science lead had already set up sort of the, the data and milestones that needed to be reached during the weekend. And we also made it clear to the participants and to the NGOs that we weren't going to provide a a final end-all solution, but that this was a proof of concept, just showing the NGOs what was possible Mm -hmm. with the data that they had. So again, this was about managing expectations. I understand. Mm -hmm. Nice. And how did this go? So you said it the different teams and the different project reached mm-hmm. uh, the milestones they planned before? Yes. So actually they all reached the milestones and each, all of the four projects produced like a proof of concept at the end of the pro uh, at the end of the hackathon. And what was actually really nice for us to observe how well the teams work together, because again, these were people who had never met each other before but just this common goal that they had uh, seemed to be enough to make them really work together and help each other out. And at the end of the hackathon, each of the teams then presented their results uh, to the rest of the hackathon participants. Mm-hmm. And um, whoever is interested, you can, you can see actually the project on our Data for Good website. Mm-hmm. I will make sure to include the link on, on the references of this episode. But then as a follow-up to this, um, as you said, all the teams or like the four projects ended in the sense with a proof of concept. Mm-hmm. Um, do you know, did the different NGOs followed up with, let's say, putting those kind of proof of concept in some way into production? Did they, did they um, take this as a base to develop those kind of projects further? Uh, the answer to that is unfortunately no, um, and and the and the reason is is actually quite simple. It's lack of money. So mm-hmm. all the NGOs saw what could what could be the result, but they also experienced how much time was necessary. Um, they experienced that that they actually needed to set aside a human resource, at least one person who would follow this project. And so even though uh, the data scientists were doing this voluntarily and we weren't charging any money, still it was hard to set aside this resource of 
people, mm-hmm. right? To follow the project and pursue it further. So in the end, the proofs of concept stayed proof of concept. This was also a learning experience for us because in future projects, more than just a proof of concept, we need to figure out with the NGOs what possibilities uh, they would have, maybe even in applying for funding to pursue this further if if they found it uh, interesting and useful. Mm-hmm. It's very funny that you mentioned this because it reminds me a lot of, of the private industry where mm-hmm. um, at the beginning several years ago, there were many like um, proof of concept AI or data science driven projects that were more or less um, experiments trying to evaluate the technology and see if this technology is capable to to, uh, produce something um, that is useful for a company, but it was never really driven by any real business case. And um, many of those projects, obviously, which are not driven by a business case, then didn't end up in a real or real having real effect on on companies. So I wonder to what extent uh, something similar would be the case for NGOs and, and, and the projects that they have so that the NGOs only over time and um, if, if experience will be able to really then um, make use of those technologies and, and, and as, as well support by organizations like Data for Good to really then have a positive impact on the way they, let's say, they are doing their business. Absolutely. I have to say, on the other hand, uh, delivering a proof of concept and showing the NGOs what the effort involved is, was was part of the point. We're not completely disappointed that nothing came of it uh, because everybody learned something from mm-hmm. the experience. Uh, and the other thing is the larger NGOs are now fully into data science. So the ones that could Um, set aside the human resources and find a budget are now fully engaged um, in data science and using it for for their projects. So uh, really part of the problem is is simply size. This doesn't only apply to NGOs, it's also small companies um, find it very difficult to put aside the resources in order to uh, use data science. Mm -hmm. And this is a problem we have in general, no matter how much we try to simplify data science, you still need a person there who will understand and turn your problem into uh, into something that can be uh, handled with data. Mm-hmm. Yes, makes sense completely. Are there any follow-up um, hackathons planned? So do you have something in the pipeline that people that are interested in listening to this episode um, could maybe then um, in the future participate in with? Well, we don't have follow-up hackathons, but we have had a follow-up pro- or other projects that we've done for NGOs. And uh, so right now we're about to start one with a Circular Economy Forum Austria, trying to map the state of sustainability in Austria. So how, how far is circular economy a part of uh, the production cycle in Austrian industry? Mm-hmm. Uh, and... And this project is just kicking off now. So anybody who's interested um, should just contact me. Uh, We'll see how to fit you into the project. There was something else, right, Rania, that you you wanted to mention? Yes. uh, I just wanted to add that uh, since actually 
Size uh, is an issue when working with data science projects. Uh, data for Good is going to uh, start collaborating with Correlate. Uh, Correlate is uh, sort of the German sister organization. Uh, it's it's much larger. It's active in Germany and also in Holland uh, and does very similar things. Um, and under the principle uh, united is better, um, we would like to uh, tackle uh, our NGO projects uh, together with Correlate. Uh, and, and that's... Our current um, circular economy forum, Austria, will be the first project that we do together with them. Perfect, perfect. Yes, as, as you described, scale um, is important in this sense. Like, I think it will be even more interesting for participants and maybe for for NGOs and organizations um, to reach out to you and um, collaborate with you on those projects. With this, I maybe want to move to the second part of the interview which was uh, is about fairness in AI and, and with your particular background and a focus in NLP. Can you give us maybe our listeners a bit like of a context and a bigger surrounding um, what is meant by fairness in AI and um, what did you in, in practice and with your experience exp um, have identified some of the, of the difficulties and challenges with fairness? Well, thanks for the question. Fairness in AI is, is actually a, a a very large topic and it's become sort of a buzzword again in in the past year or so as with any tool at first most of the people um, using it think it's wonderful and it's it's magic and it will solve all the problems and then at some point reality sets in and we realize well it's a good tool but sometimes it does things we don't want it to do and here we have AI, which we find out doesn't only, let's say, classify or predict the things we want, but it's picking up uh, discriminations and biases that exist uh, in us humans and also repeating those as patterns. Mm -hmm. um, so, so this is sort of the, the general background to the fairness in AI um, debate. Thank you very much, Anir, for this introduction. Um, can you maybe give our listeners um, some concrete examples of um, such cases where the, the negative side effects of, of AI and um, this type of technologies? Actually, uh, in the last years, we've, we've seen a lot of these cases uh, coming uh, into the news. And if anybody has watched the documentary Coded Bias, you'll be very familiar with bias in computer vision. What we've discovered is that our uh, computer vision algorithms don't work very well or don't work as well for people of color. Uh, the darker your skin is, the more likely the computer vision system is to make a mistake. And they also uh, don't work quite as well for women as for men. Um, so if you are a woman of color, then these systems tend to fail for you. We've also seen uh, examples of algorithms used in human resources. Uh, for example, I think Amazon's hiring algorithm was the most uh, talked about one. Uh, it turned out to discriminate against women when it came to 
uh, tech positions. And but but this this kind of problem is not is not only for Amazon. It's it's any kind of hiring algorithm tends to discriminate uh, against people who have not been often historically part of a part of uh, of a given profession. We also find in in speech recognition that speech recognition algorithms uh, again they don't work well as well for women as for men. They also don't work as well for people with particular kinds of accents or maybe people with a speech impediment as they do uh, for others. And the list goes on. Basically, if you can come up with a kind of discrimination that we as humans have, then you are going to find an algorithm which reproduces that. Mm -hmm. I understand. And from your experience, the example, for example, that you gave or the technology that you have been describing, do you think this is just, let's say, just an effect of the the state of the technology and, and, and uh, the progress that we had made up to now, meaning that you would expect this, let's say, to be fixed um, to some extent just by improving that technology? Or do you think this is that we have to change the manners that um, these systems are built and the things that take to account when building such, such systems? This is a, actually a very difficult question. And lots of brains, not just mine, are, are grappling with it. But my feeling is the problem lies with us as humans to pretend that we don't fix our own behavior, but the technology is somehow going to make it go away, I think that's uh, utopistic and I don't believe in it. Mm -hmm. But I think that if we show some awareness, we become fully conscious of the fact that uh, there is discrimination and that it can enter uh, into our algorithms, then we can start putting in some safeguards and some corrections create better technologies that minimize discrimination. Mm -hmm. and, and we can also use the technology as a mirror to ourselves. So if we find that the technology is discriminating, maybe this is the moment to step back and say, huh, okay, I didn't realize that this bias was so deeply embedded. What can I do about it? Mm-hmm. And the one thing I would really like for us all to get rid of is this conception that algorithms are just mathematics and code and that they are therefore objective. I, I think that that is one of the most pernicious uh, aspects of the technology, this, this kind of veneer of objectivity. And we really need to get rid of this idea. The algorithms are created by humans They're created by us, and and so they will have uh, the same defects. They will reflect our defects. Mm -hmm. Definitely makes sense, um, as you said, right? Algorithms up to now, or this, the systems are up to now built by humans, so they 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 reflect the values um, and the ideas that and, and the culture that those developers have. Um, I'm just curious then, thinking about like modern modern systems and even like social media, um, as you have a lot of experience in social media. So um, all those systems, um, to some extent, try to personalize their experience for the for the customer. And I'm wondering to what extent 
can you distinguish between systematic bias in the data or like in the, in the behavior of such system and um, let's say the capability of a system to adapt to to the individual needs and the individual preferences of the customer so i can easily imagine this right that you that for example social media right social media in this uh, extent that the you see like is often used to communicate political views or to communicate um, a certain type of of values and you want to have systems right that are able to provide the best experience to some extent the most value um, to their customers and there I, I naively would, would imagine that there is a there is um, a dichotomy to some extent there's this 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 back and forth between like maybe you want the system to don't have bias but at the same time you want the system to be biased towards the individual preference of of, of the user or do I miss something here Great. I, I'm so happy you asked this question because, because this comes down to a, a fundamental problem with how we use words. And in fact, the word bias uh, is a heavily loaded term. And uh, if you use it in the statistical or purely machine learning sense, you can't have any kind of classification or prediction system without a bias. Mm -hmm. So a very uh, simple example, just so we're clear, what do I mean by bias? If I want to, if I want my uh, machine learning system to look at pictures and differentiate between a dog and a cat, then that machine learning system has to be biased towards picking out the features that differentiate dog or cat, and then call those with dog-like features dog and those with cat-like features cat. Uh, mm -hmm. If it didn't have any bias, it wouldn't be able to classify. So uh, in that sense, bias is, is the same as differentiate. Okay. And that's a bias that I want, right? I, I, I can't have any kind of classification without that kind of bias. But then when, when normally we're talking uh, sort of in everyday speech, when we're talking about bias, we're, we're thinking more of discrimination, of prejudice, of something that we don't want. And when you start talking about bias in AI, you always end up in this kind of confusion where people are saying, I don't want bias. And then the engineers will say, well, you can't have your classification system without bias. Mm -hmm. But this is but this is more of a semantic problem. Really, our our issue here with the technology is that it is discriminating and it is causing uh, decisions to be made that are unfair. And whether you want to call that bias or you want to call that something else, let somebody else battle it out. But really, uh, the issue is our systems are not performing the way they should and are not treating uh, everybody they're not treating everybody fairly mm -hmm. 
understand as you already touched about data for good as, as an ng as an as an organization before i know that uh, as we talked of mike that you are part of uh, women in ai and um as i understood exactly is that there are several ways that um organizations and individuals can influence regulatory frameworks um on a national and international level and as you said exactly What kind of uh, possibilities are there for for individuals and organizations, as you said, to affect the use and the requirements that we have for future AI-driven systems? Yeah, so so this this actually touches on uh, several issues. One one of the issues is that, uh, as I said, the technology that we build is a reflection of our own prejudices or discriminatory behavior. And and so one of the problems with technology right now is it's exclusive. Mm -hmm. There are very few women who participate in the in the decisions regarding technology and in the production of the technology. Um, there are very few ethnic minorities involved in the production of, of these tools. And so Uh, one of the ways to start reducing the technological harms is to involve a more diverse uh, group of people in the technology. Mm -hmm. And this is, for example, the push behind women in AI to enable and encourage more women and more underrepresented minorities to enter the field of AI to give them support. And a lot of times also, uh, depending on the particular chapter, there are also educational initiatives and professional networks uh, to, to give support and enable people to enter this field. Mm -hmm. uh, at another level, in order to ensure that the technology works the way it's intended to, we do need regulation. And, and we are fortunate, actually, to be living in the EU, which has been at the forefront of developing regulations to protect citizens and consumers, uh, starting with the data protection regulation, moving on to what's coming up next, which is an AI act. This AI act as a democratic uh, principle is open to all of us to read right now. The draft regulation is online and everybody um, can access it and read it. And there is a public consultation. So um, the EU does want to know what we think of this proposed regulation. And it's possible to submit comments as a private person, as a company, but also as an NGO. And this is uh, the other field where women in AI Austria is very active. We, we do read these uh, draft legislations and we are active in submitting comments when, when they are open to public consultation. Mm-hmm. Um, you sent me prior to the interview a link to a currently open consultation on Digital mm -hmm. Service Act package, which I see is opened on the 2nd of June and it's open until the 8th of September. 
Can you maybe tell us or listen a bit about how this works? So you said you're discussing this within the Women in AI group and with what kind of form and shape does this take? And especially like the, the, the comments that you can then, if I understand it correctly, uh, provide to the European Council here. So the, the response to the Digital Services Act is something that basically uh, we just agree. Some of us are interested in this. So we uh, read it together and then we have occasional meetings and discuss with each other uh, our points of view. And then we converge on a common ground and submit those as responses to the public consultation. Uh, anybody who's interested in uh, this kind of actually discussion, and, and it's very useful when, when you have smaller groups that you can actually just talk about uh, these legislations with each other and, and learn from somebody else's uh, point of view. Anybody who's interested in, in participating in such discussions can can contact me and I, I will I will help you uh, join the women in AI Austria chapter. Actually mm -hmm. not. I will tell you how to join the women in AI Austria chapter. Otherwise, it's also quite possible. This, as I said, the public consultation is open, so um, anyone can. Uh, choose to uh, respond privately and and this is an option open also to everybody from your experience what kind of effect or a possible effect on those comp uh, comments actually have on the i guess the legislation to some extent that remains to be seen women in ai austria is is a young organization so we've only been around for uh, one year And so we've been participating in these consultations for about six months. So what impact our, our responses will have is something we, will, we, we are still waiting to find out. Certainly, what we do know is that all the public consultations, the comments are uh, collated by the European Commission. If you uh, allow this, They are also published. Mm -hmm. I think, uh, as as is true with most things, if if you can find some points of similarity with other organizations, uh, then then the push becomes stronger. So, if everybody is focused on banning facial rec recognition, for example, uh, this uh, there is a big um, campaign going on right now um, by a lot of digital rights organizations. Um, and, and if everybody is supporting this push, uh, you, can, you can hope to influence the regulation and how it's going. I understand. Makes sense. And at the same time, I can imagine that uh, for the participants, this is like a way to get educated and informed about um, uh, things happening in this space. Right. Um, and I also uh, highly recommend for anybody who's interested uh, in these issues also to follow organizations like Access Now and the European Digital Rights Forum. They publish a lot of opinions um, and 
also actually the European Data Protection Supervisor, publish very interesting opinions uh, on on AI and its impact, and right now in particular regarding the AI Act. So anybody who's interested, uh, those are good places to go uh, also to get informed. Mm -hmm. I will make sure to include all those references in the show notes. But then looking at the, at the clock, uh, maybe moving towards the end of the interview, I would be curious if you could give our participants, uh, sorry, our, our listeners, um, some practical advice. If, if they're interested, for example, if they are, because many of our listeners, they are working as data scientists, they're working as machine learning engineers. So um, if, if they want to make sure that the products they are working on, that they are fairer and have less of the bias that we, that we don't want, can you give them some practical advice on how to do so or how to get started? Yes. Yeah, so... First of all, uh, anybody who's who's interested uh, as a data scientist in reducing bias, um, there are plenty of tools out there that will help you. And I, I first of all, my memory is too bad to actually remember, but I can I can uh, give you Manuel some links. Sure. But I, I don't want to advertise one tool versus another. Um, the tools tend to be developed by the big tech agency or big tech companies, and I don't want to say one and miss out the other. But the other thing is really before you start the project, if you have the opportunity to stop and think, what is this tool supposed to do? And is that even a good thing? That would be a great place to start. Mm -hmm. And the second thing is once you know the tool that you want to develop, to figure out who are your stakeholders and maybe talk to some of them. And then as a third step, to start using the tools, the tools that can help you uh, de-bias your data or, or actually um, try to fix the algorithm itself or uh, tools that can help you post-process. So at the end of the process, after the decision has been made, uh, to try to unbias the decision. So there are tools that you can use in the actual development process, but it would really be helpful to think about what you're doing and who is being impacted before you even start. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes this is, this is unfair to ask of a data scientist, actually. They're, they're supposed to do uh, all of this. So if you can find a team or people who can support you, uh, this, uh, this will make the journey more easier. Uh, actually, it will make the journey easier and I think more rewarding as well. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. But as you said already, then the, really this, this, this mindset and uh, the people to talk to and, and, and to discuss uh, are definitely a key element here. So I really make sure that, that the references that you mentioned before and uh, your discussion group within the Women of AI are going to be part of the, of the reference for this show. But then is there actually something that we missed during this episode that you would like to mention before we close up? Well, one thing is that the issue with fairness in AI is only part of the problem. And with the regulation, but actually uh, going beyond regulation, we as society need to think about also the environmental impact of this technology that we're using. And we also uh, need to think about who is benefiting 
uh, from this technology and who's being left behind. And those are issues that go beyond simply the fairness of my algorithm. They're, they're, they need to be thought a little bit more broadly. It is actually part of the uh, EU's push towards trustworthy AI that some of these things are being thought about, but it needs more people to get involved. Uh, somebody needs to demand, for example, AI, which is accessible to people with disabilities. Somebody needs to demand that we develop tools that measure how much energy we're consuming as we run our algorithms. Mm -hmm. And somebody uh, needs to step in and start protecting workers from decisions made by AI or workers who are being pushed out of jobs by AI. And, and one thing that we're kind of ignoring is the quality of the AI. Right now, a lot of systems are put on the market that make all sorts of claims. And guess what? They don't have to prove it. And there is actually mm -hmm. no guarantee that they do what they claim to do. How is that different from uh, the famous snake oil? True, true. So those are things that, that are also part of the uh, regulation, but uh, a lot of it is also missed right now. And uh, if, if we can get people interested in AI and who are also willing to think uh, more broadly, I think this will, uh, this will uh, help us and help the field um, to develop new and maybe better products. Definitely makes sense. Um, yeah, there are many things that you touched upon, many important aspects of, of technology and, and the use of it and the interaction with society. And as you said, right, there, there's many of the AI in particular is like a new technology in the sense, the way that it's affecting uh, our day-to-day -day lives. As you already mentioned as well, the way that the technology is presented at the moment and the way that companies have to justify their use and the capabilities sounds like it's really at the beginning of, of hopefully uh, a process that will take some time and that needs some shaping. I can really only hope that, as you described it already, uh, people are stepping up and are confronting companies to their social responsibility they have uh, in, in making use of this technology so that it's it's not only free market that is driving the decisions but the their social responsibilities that the companies have and and um, the way they make use of ai um, is not left behind yes thank you for that very nice summary with this, I want to thank you, Anya, very much for coming on to the show. I think it has been a very interesting show and many, many touch points for listeners that are interested in either supporting NGOs organization with uh, Data for Good or being interested in uh, finding a place to discuss fairness and the social impact of uh, AI. Um, I will make sure to include all the different um, references in the show notes and um, so that people can either reach out to you directly or to the organizations that we mentioned. Yeah, that's perfect. Thank you very much. Uh, it's been a great pleasure uh, talking to you, Manuel. Um, thank you for inviting me. Bye. Bye.